What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own, his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are all being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. All right. Well, hey, New City. It's great to be with you today. My name is Roger Rushing. I'm one of the pastors here at New City. And uh, when I saw that this was my passage for the week, when I got the teaching schedule, I was ecstatic. I mean, there's really, there's nothing better really to preach. This is Paul at his finest. I even joked with the staff, Really, all you need to do with this is just read the passage. That's it. You just read the passage and go home, because if you try to do anything else, you're just going to mess it up. Uh, but then I thought more about it, and I was like, but if I do that, what are you going to do with the next 35 minutes? And, you know, the band needs a break, so I'm going to do my mess, best to mess it up a little bit and share a few ideas with you anyway. Uh, so I have a question for you, and this question I was going to say is going to show my age, but I feel like probably the gray in my beard already does that. But uh, how many of you remember the Where's the Beef Lady? Do you guys remember that? Where's the beef? Did you know that's from 1984? Anyway, so for those of you that don't know the Where's the Beef Lady, uh, it was a Wendy's commercial, and it was these ladies who would go and they would look at these giant hamburger buns, but then they would find magnifying glasses and stuff and try to find these itty-bitty little patties. And then this lady would, would call up on the phone to the restaurant, and she would yell out, Where's the beef? Right? So that's a Where's the Beef Lady. I feel like kind of my question that I'm coming in today with a little bit, and that you might be tempted to come into today a little bit, is where's the hope? You know, with, with everything that's happened in 2020 and now 2021, it's easy for us to kind of have this question of where's the hope? There's so much taking place, and you have to kind of dig around and look and find it. And it's not that there is no hope. I mean, I, for one, I'm incredibly hopeful, for instance, for the vaccine. I'm really excited for the, I hope the rollout speeds up, but for this rollout of the vaccine for COVID, I'm really excited to get it myself and to hopefully, you know, for enough of us to get it that we can begin to meet together more and hang out more and get some kind of normalcy back and begin to, to turn the corner on this thing. So there is hope, but I feel like sometimes we've got our magnifying glasses out and we're digging around and we're going, man, there's so much going on. Where's the hope? And not only that, but every time I feel like we, we kind of solve one problem, it's like we're playing problem whack-a-mole. So we start to make progress on one thing and like two or three more pop up, right? And so it's tempting and it's easy to say, where is the hope? And if you find yourself in that place today, I've got really, really good news for you. Because Paul tells us plainly, the hope is here. I mean, it's right here in these few verses that he has. That he lays it out it's so beautifully and it's so densely packed, but he tells us the hope is here. We have hope in God because God is for us. And not only that, we have hope because nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
And Paul is so masterful with these few verses and some of it we pick up on easily and some of it we don't quite see because the context and the mindset is different. But he uses these few verses to really show us that we have hope because of what God has already done through Jesus Christ. We also have hope because of what God is currently doing and what Jesus is doing for us right now. And then we also have hope because of the assurance that we have of what God is going to do. So all of that is packed into what's taking place here. And the first thing I want to talk about is this idea that we have hope because of what God has already done for us in Jesus. So in verse 32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So this is one of those that we might not see some of what Paul is doing here, but I've highlighted the key phrase, it's who did not spare his own son. See, Paul is using that language to hearken back to a history and to hearken back to a story that Paul would have known well, a story found in Genesis chapter 22 called the Akeda or the binding, the binding of Isaac. See, Abraham and Sarah, they were old, they had no children, but God came to them and said, I will make you the mother and the father of many nations. And the embodiment of that promise became the birth of Isaac, their son. But as Isaac grew up, as he was a young man, there came a time when God said to Abraham, take that child of the promise and sacrifice him to me. And so I'm sure full of internal turmoil, in his faithfulness, Abraham went to do just that. And so he took Isaac to the place that God had shown him and he bound him and he laid him on the altar and he took out his ritual knife and he raised it to sacrifice the child of the promise. But then God called out in verse uh, 12 of chapter 22 and he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God and then pick up on this, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. See, Abraham's actions were credited to him as faithfulness. It showed that he was so steadfast and faithful and true to God. It was also, the Bible says, credited to him as righteousness. But look at this. God has not withheld his son from us. And in fact, he went further because there was no voice that cried out when Christ was on the cross that said, stop. But he actually gave us his son. And in so doing, he gives us this, he shows us his faithfulness, but he also shows us his love. And so, so Paul is hearkening back, not just to that Genesis story, but everything that comes after to show how faithful God is and how loving God is. And in fact, in Romans 5, 8, Paul's already spelled us out for us when he says, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul didn't have John's gospel available to him, but had he, I think he would have gone to John 3.16 and also quoted, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He didn't withhold his son for us, but he gave us his son that, that we might not perish, but that we might be saved through him. See, God is showing us not just this gift of love that he gives us in his son, but it's an act of love. It's God acting out his love for us. And even in, in Paul's quoting of this psalm, that's what that lament psalm is right there, where he talks about us being slaughtered all day long. It's part of a lament song, and the way he does it, he's hearkening back to the psalm in its entirety. But it's a psalm that comes from the people's history when they felt like they were abandoned by God. And this was one of the few times that it wasn't their fault. 
They hadn't slipped into idolatry. They were doing all of the right things, and yet their enemies seemed victorious over them. And they cried out to God. They even, they even called to wake God up. And they say, God, you've got to show up. And they say, for two reasons, for your name's sake, but then by the end of it, for the sake of your love. See, Paul is showing us that this is kind of the, the undoing of that psalm. This is showing us that, that no matter how bad it is, no matter what we're going through, no matter how victorious our enemies might seem to be, no matter the hardship we're facing, the suffering, the pain, it is not evidence that God has abandoned us, for there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. In fact, God is for us. And so there is hope because of what God has done through Jesus Christ in bringing us back to him and reconciling us and justifying us through the gift and the act of this love of giving us his son. But we also have hope because of what Jesus is doing for us now. We see in verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised. And what is he doing now that he's been raised? He sits at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So there is hope because Jesus Christ himself, the resurrected one, is interceding for us. That means that Jesus is praying for you. Last week, Christian talked to us about the moaning and the groaning that sometimes that's the only way we can express our prayers, and yet the Spirit translates that into, into meaningful understanding, and it's Jesus who takes that and is, is bringing that before God for us. And so there is hope, not just because God has shown us love, but because God is still with us now. God is with us. Jesus is with us now. And in that, he's interceding for us. He's pleading our case. He's suffering for us and with us. And he's bringing that to the heart of the Father. So there's hope because of what Jesus is already doing. But there's also hope because of what God will do in the future. See, we can trust these glorious words and these ideas and these visions and these thoughts that God has shown us of what the future will be. Those ideas of the new creation that is already being made new, we can trust in all of that because God has been faithful from the beginning. Because God did not withhold his own son from us. And even in the resurrection of Jesus that Paul has already mentioned, we see the beginning of the undoing of all that is wrong. We see the beginning of the setting right of all things. We see the beginning of all things being made new and of the new creation that God is bringing. So no matter how dark it might get, no matter how hopeless it might seem, no matter how victorious our enemies may appear to be, we have this hope that he who has begun this good work, he is faithful and he will finish it. And so there will come a time when we experience fully the rightness of things being set right, that shalom, the rightness of God's love. And so we have hope because of what God has done we have hope because of what God and Jesus are doing now, and we have hope because of the assurances of what God will do in the future. So then when, when Paul lays out all of this, this stuff that can get in the way, and he talks about all this tribulation and pain, which, by the way, you go down that list, Paul suffered all of those things. He was suffering a lot of them the, at the time that he penned this letter. And the Romans that he's speaking to, I mean, this is just before Nero. I mean, things are going to get really bad. They experienced all of these things. But Paul has this exhaustive list that says, none of this is going to get in the way. 
And so Paul, Paul starts out by saying with all of this, and he's referencing all that's come before in his letter, and he's referencing all this stuff, but he says with all of this, what can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? But we have to ask ourselves a question, what does Paul mean if God is for us? Because here's, here's kind of a problem we run into. Sometimes we misinterpret this text a little bit. We kind of see it that if my enemies have kind of all of their weapons and all of their you know, big sticks and guns and bombs, if they have all of that against me, but then we look at it and we're like, but if I have God, if God is for us, it's like I've got the biggest stick or I've got the biggest bomb, right? Now, I know it's kind of silly to talk about weaponizing God. I mean, nobody would ever do that, right? But this is kind of what we do sometimes. It's kind of like this thing of like, hey, no matter what, you, what dog you bring to the fight, I've got a bigger dog, right? I've got the bigger bomb. At the end of the day, we're going to end this. But as Pastor Nate's pointed out several times, that line of thinking is the same as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? We just say we're better at it. So we might be able to blind you better or knock more teeth out, but at the end of the day, if they have their bombs and we've got our big bomb, at the end of the day, everybody's just blown up, right? And that's not really what Paul is saying here. Paul instead is saying, if God is for us, and what, he, what he's going to show is, is he's going to kind of paint this courtroom picture for us. And so what he's going to say is that God has the right to be against us, right? God has a right to stand in judgment over us. So look back at verse 33. He says, if God is for us, then he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So he's painting this courtroom picture, and in this courtroom, God is judge. And we should, we should recognize we're on the defense. We should be a little fearful because the evidence against us is pretty impressive. Well, at least against me. It's pretty impressive. I don't know, maybe you've done better. But my evidence, it's pretty impressively against me. And there's some fear and some trembling there that God, in his rightness, stands as judge. But, but Paul says the judge is the one who justifies us. So he has a right to bring it. He has a right to levy the, the judgment against us. But he is the one who did not withhold his own son and, in fact, justifies us. So who then? Who's going to judge us? That's what Paul's saying. And he goes on to talk to us about the prosecutor. Because we're not alone with God in this, in this courtroom. There's a prosecutor. And that prosecutor's name is Jesus. And so in verse 34, he said, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. <laughs> it's ludicrous, right? The one who would stand to condemn us died for us, right? He died more than that. He was raised. And again, he's interceding for us. The prosecutor's pleading our case. So you might, you might think of this story. There was a time when a woman was caught in adultery, and the penalty for adultery was death. And so these men who decided to test Jesus with this woman, they grab this woman and they throw her down in the dirt at his feet. They have stones in hand, and they say, look, it's clear what the law of Moses requires, the death of this woman. What do you have to say? And then Jesus, love embodied, he bends down. He gets down in the dirt at her level. And he spends some moments there, and then he stands, and he says to them, you're right. So he who has no sin, let him throw the first stone. And you can just see it in your mind's eye, each man dropping his stone and walking away because they recognize they don't qualify. They all have sin in their life. And then Jesus speaks to the woman and says, where have they all gone? 
Does no one, is no one left to condemn you? And she says, no, they've all gone. And then Jesus, who has a right to pick up the stone and carry out the law, instead, instead says to the woman, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So if that's our prosecutor, and that's our judge, who can stand against us? There is no one that can bring a better case. It's not about having the biggest bomb. It's, it's there's no one else qualified. Whatever our enemies might hurl against us, it just doesn't compare. There was one charge, and it was found to be true, but the prosecutor said mercy, and the judge said mercy. And the prosecutor died for us, and the judge did not withhold his own son from us. And so God is for us. And so then go, Paul goes on to list all of these things that can threaten us, and they're real. They bring real pain and real suffering, but at the end of the day, they cannot separate us from the love of God. And it is an exhaustive list. At one point, Paul says, all of creation so that covers everything. So it's not inappropriate for us to add some things to that list. It's not inappropriate. I mean, you might even feel like adding COVID to that list. COVID-19 cannot separate us from the love of God. Cancer cannot separate us from the love of God. All of these things of fear and suffering and anxiety, they can't separate us from the love of God. But there's one name on that list that sometimes gets left off, I think, and is harder for us to remember to put on there. And for me, that name is Roger. Just a reminder, that's my name. For you, it should be your name. But see, we should see that our name is also on this list. We're covered in that all of creation thing. Because if you're like me, sometimes you think that I can separate myself from the love of God. Me and all that makes up me, that means my past. That means our pride and our arrogance cannot separate us from the love of God. That means that our weakness and our mistakes can't separate us from the love of God. That means that even our willful rebellion, even if you've done it as many times as me, cannot separate us from the love of God. See, we should see that our name is on that list, and in so doing, we should see that there is indeed so much hope here. Because no matter what I've done, no matter what I will do, no matter what lies I believe about myself, whatever it is, it can't separate me from the love of God, and it's just the same for you. So our name should be on that list too. There's nothing that you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. But then this raises for me another question. So we already talked about what does it mean that God is for us. And we find hope that nothing can separate us from the love of God. But my question then is, what about our enemies? We already know they can't separate us from the love of God. But kind of the tougher question today is, is God for our enemies? Is God for our enemies? Now I'll just be straight with you right now. This next part's going to get a little uncomfortable but I've taken steps to make it more comfortable, like starting with a cute story. So let me tell you this cute story. I grew up playing soccer, among other things, but soccer was the thing that stuck. I played a lot of competitive soccer, and I've, I've been in a lot of games and tournaments and all this kind of stuff, and at various times, players might want to pray before a game, or coaches have sometimes led us in 
prayers, and, and most of those prayers have been really good. Uh, you know, it's prayers for endurance and strength and character and sportsmanship. But I remember one time when I was little, I don't know how little I was, but it was back when he still wear either the orange jersey or the white jersey, so I was pretty little. And I remember one time the, the coach let one of the other players pray. And that kid prayed. And he prayed that we would be victorious and that we would win. And I mean, he was, it was a fiery prayer and it was pretty intense. But I remember walking back to the sideline and I was walking next to our coach's son and I remember overhearing their conversation and the, the little son, he asked his dad, he said, dad, if both teams pray to God that they'll win, how does God decide who's going to win? And I, for the life of me, cannot remember what his dad slash my coach, what his answer was. But I thought it'd be fun just to kind of Google that question and see what came up. So I Googled it. Turns out a lot comes up. There, there's a lot to be said on that. But uh, I picked this, this one response. I thought it was pretty appropriate. It's apparently from a Canadian. And uh, so when asked the question, if, if both sides pray to God to win, how does God decide who gets to win? And he said, apparently the team that wins, unless it's a regular season game and God chooses a losing team to learn from their loss to win more important games later. But really, God seriously wishes that the most talented players, primarily NFL players, could play the more open, less ridiculous Canadian Football League game without fair catches and touchbacks and down punts or other dumb rules. So, so there you go. There's our, our cute kid and our funny Canadian to help introduce this difficult topic. But it's funny and it's cute when we're talking about sports teams because I don't think that any of us probably really honestly pray for one sports team to win over another. We probably don't really believe that God favors one team more than another. I guess unless maybe you're the Saints because it's in the name. I don't know. But I don't think we seriously believe that. So we can laugh at the little kid in his oversized jersey and we can laugh at the Canadian because Canadians are funny. But, but it's serious and it begins to get uncomfortable when we start to think about who are our enemies. See, we have this, this inclination and this tendency to want to define an us and a them. And David Bartlett in his commentary on Romans, he reminds us, for Paul, we are also more than conquerors because we are other than conquerors. We shall see in Romans 13, which we don't get to cover today, that the Christian life for Paul is not the life of conquest, but of loving compassion. Those who are more than conquerors are those who refuse to conquer. Those who refuse to seek victory are victorious. Those who do not glory in their own accomplishments can boast in the glory of the Lord. Jesus said it another way when he said, those who seek to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for me, they will find it. But see, we have this ingrained tendency, this tribalism that's deep inside of us to, to delineate markers and boundaries, to put up fences or build walls, and to establish by our own criteria who is out there as them and who is in here as us. And weirdly and coincidentally, the us always look like us. They talk like us. They, they think like us. They vote like us. They believe like us. And so we see God is for us. But God's not for them, right? And so it's funny and it's cute with sports teams, but it's a little bit harder when we think about some of the strife that's going on right now, like with political parties, where we think that, that God is for one political party over the others. And the God, God is always for the political party we're part of, by the way. So if you're Democrat, surprise, God is for Democrats. If you're Republican, hey, look at that, God is for Republicans. But God is also against 
That's the implication, and that's the implication we live out. God is against the other, right? And it goes even further than that. It gets super uncomfortable when we start talking about even just our nation as a whole. With this resurgence of Christian nationalism, it just makes evident this, this myth that we've bought into that somehow the United States is, we're number one even in God's eyes, right? It works at the Olympics. We're number one, USA, USA. It doesn't work in God's eyes. To say that God is for us and then to live as though God is against them, whoever them is, whether that be Russia or China or Venezuela or fill in the blank because that's what we get to do with our enemies is we just get to fill in the blank, right? It's like Taylor Swift. I've got a blank and I'll write your name, right? But this is, this is what we do and we, we, we set even the United States on some type of pedestal and we say, yes, clearly God is for us, so who could stand against us? Don't forget, we've got that bigger bomb, right? But this is not the image that Paul has for us. And while my cute story of the little kid in his oversized jersey and the funny Canadian works there, we need a more serious story for this one. And it's not mine, but it's one that Jesus tells. And I have to confess at this point, I want to go through this story line by line, word by word, and go into incredible detail because I love it and it's exciting. There's so much to preach. But I have this voice in the back of my head that might be the Holy Spirit, sounds a lot like my wife, that says nobody wants to hear you preach four sermons today. So whether it's my wife or the Holy Spirit, both are wiser than I, and I'm going to try to listen. So we're just going to have to go through this in a little bit sketched out view. But this is a story found in Luke chapter 10, the story that we've come to entitled The Good Samaritan. So the story starts out with this man who wants to test Jesus, who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which... I am taking one side note here. That's a flawed question. How do you do to inherit? You are to inherit. Inheritance is based on relationship and gift, not do. It's a flawed question. But anyway, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't answer the question. He asks the question, tell me, you're a, a lawyer. What does the law say? How do you understand it? By lawyer and law, I mean religious law. That's who this guy is. What does it say? And so he sums it all up this lawyer does, and he says, well, it says to love God with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've spoken rightly, go and do that. And then Luke, picking really carefully his language here, says, but the man wishing to justify himself, can't go there today, but you can go there in your head, but wishing to justify himself, comes back and says, well, but who is my neighbor? Who should I love? So then Jesus tells this story, and it's a beautiful story that we can't unpack, but here's the here's story in a nutshell. He tells the story of this Jew who's going down the road who is beaten and robbed. He's stripped completely naked, which isn't just to show that he was really totally robbed, but it's to show that there's nothing to identify who he is, what kind of person, uh, what kind of social class, but here he is, just stripped down to nothing but his humanity, and he's left to die on the side of the road. And along comes a would-be hero of the story, a priest. A priest who's going to do his religious duties, a priest who, by the way, has money and resources, but he also has all of these duties and all these laws and cleanliness stuff that complicates the whole situation. We'd get into that more if we could, but I just don't want to sell him too short. But he has a lot of complicated things going on. But here comes this priest, and he sees this man who may already be dead or is close to death, and he has to decide, what am I going to do? And what does he do? He crosses to the other side of the road and goes on with his day. Not too long after that, a second man, a second would-be hero, comes along, 
This guy, he's not quite as high up as the, as the high priest or the priests that came along, but he's still up in that leadership and religious echelon, and he comes along, and he has to make that same decision. And you know what he does? He follows in the footsteps of the priest. He crosses the road, and he goes on with his day. Then comes the third, and the third is always that place that you find the true hero. I mean, it's like Goldilocks, right? One is too hot, one's too cold, and this one's perfect. So here comes the perfect would-be hero. Except the problem with this perfect would-be hero is he is not perfect at all because he is a Samaritan. And that might not mean anything to you because we call this the Good Samaritan and we even have Good Samaritan laws and we always have Good and Samaritan together, but for the Jew, there was no such thing. There was not a Good Samaritan. The Samaritans were worse than Gentiles to them. They were the enemy. They had centuries of infighting and all of this bloody history and baggage that they brought into it that we don't have time to go into now. But at the end of the day, both claimed to worship the same God. Both said the other one did it totally wrong. And honestly, both hated the other. So for the Samaritans, there was no good Jew. And for the Jews, no good Samaritan. But here comes the Samaritan who finds this man bleeding to death on the side of the road. And if you know the story, you know what happens. He stops He cares for his wounds. He puts oil on them. He binds them up. He puts the man on his own donkey and risking life and limb walks into a Jewish town and takes him to a Jewish inn where he pays a Jewish innkeeper to take care of the man and he promises if if it costs more to take care of him than what I've paid, I will come back risking life and limb again and I will pay his bill. So at the end of this story, Jesus asks the lawyer, he says, so which one of these people acted as a neighbor. In fact, you could even translate it, which one of these became a neighbor to the man? And it's interesting, the lawyer can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan, so instead he says, the one who showed mercy. And so Jesus says, go and do likewise. See, we have to understand that the lawyer was right in his summary of the law. And in fact, another place, Jesus gives the same answer. He says, all the law and the prophets hangs on these two things. Love the Lord your God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. But we have to understand in that love your neighbor as yourself, it encompasses the most, in my opinion, the most radical teaching of Jesus. And that is, love your enemies. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard that it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say to you, he tells them, love your enemies. And remember, Jesus embodies this love. See, the Samaritan, this Samaritan, the good Samaritan, he realized that our enemy is our neighbor, they just don't know it yet. But the problem is, we usually don't know it yet either. And so we live as though they are enemy, but we have to remember that Jesus embodied this radical teaching. In fact, when his enemies come to arrest him, Peter takes out his sword. He's like, not on my watch. Ah!" And he hacks one of the enemy's ears off. He's apparently really bad at the sword, but he hacks the dude's ears off. And Jesus rebukes his follower, and he says, this is enough. And he takes that ear and he reaches out and he heals the wound of his enemy. And it's not to get some kind of mercy from the enemy because as soon as he's done, those same enemies march Jesus off to his death. So Jesus doesn't just come preaching this radical idea of love your enemy. He embodies it for us. 
but you have to hear the call, so go and do likewise. See, as good as we are about being gatekeepers and fence fixers and boundary delineators and wall builders, as good as we are as saying us and them and picturing that somehow God is inside our wall too with us but not out there with them, as much as we're inclined to do all of that, it turns out that God is, is for us. In fact, back at John 3.16, it said, for God so loved the world. And just last week, we were talking about how much the creation as a whole is moaning and groaning, and God is already about the restorative work, the redemptive work of the creation. And so we have to recognize, my name is on this list for me. But I also have to remember, my name is on this list for my enemy. So as much as I might want to, there is nothing I can do to separate my enemy from the love of God. And in fact, God is trying to show us, and Paul is echoing these words, we need to see that our enemy is actually our neighbor. And even if they don't know it yet, we have to come to know that. But we see that even in that, there's hope. There's hope. Because if we live into that, we can find that this world that God tells us is going to come to be, this world where every tribe, every tongue, every nation comes together and bows their knee and worships God together, it comes to fruition. This world where people don't teach war anymore because nobody has any use for it. This world where our swords have lost their point. And so we beat them into plowshares, not to take life, but to cultivate new life in the new creation. And so we have hope in that. And we can see that there is nothing that will separate us from the love of God. There is nothing that's going to stand against God's vision that's going to come. And the sooner that we recognize that and the sooner that we give ourselves over to that and the sooner that we begin to partner with God in that, we find that our enemy is in fact neighbor. We find that there is no wall and delineation where we can say God is here, but God is not there. But we can celebrate together that God is for us and nothing can separate us from the love of God. So I'm gonna preach three more sermons, but I won't. So we'll wrap it up. And as we wrap it up, we come to kind of four moves that we go through here at the end of each service. The first one is this idea of, of this decision time. And you might find yourself right now thinking, man, I have done everything I can to separate myself from the love of God. Hopefully you realize that's futile. It's futile, you can't do it. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're ready to give up. I encourage you to make that decision right now. Just give up. Give up and let God, because you can find that then God is for you. God's already for you. God already loves you. And as hard as you're working to separate yourself, it's just not going to happen. So if you want to make that decision today, I want to celebrate that with you. We want to celebrate that with you. Feel free to let us know. But I just encourage you, don't waste any more time. Make that decision. Also, if you want to worship with us in generosity, if you want to give and and help us to, to support our neighbors and to give in those ways. If you want to give, there's lots of ways to give. You can give online or via text or on the app, or if you're here today, we've got boxes on the back you can give. We also celebrate communion. It's a time where we take the, the cup and remember Jesus' blood shed for us and the body of Christ broken for us as we see symbolized in the bread. 
So I encourage you, whether it's over these next couple worship songs or just later today or even in this moment right now, take some communion. Take those symbols and look at them and recognize the truth that God did not withhold his son from us. He did not withhold his son from you. But recognize in those elements the love that we see acted upon and embodied by God. And then our last move today is prayer. And for prayer, I, uh, I want to preach the sermon that I probably should have preached to begin with. And that is, I just want to read the scripture. I want that to be our prayer today. And you can read along if you want, but I also want you to feel comfortable just closing your eyes and, uh, and hear the words. Let these words from Paul sink in. Let them sink into our mind and our heart. Let us hear what the Spirit might have from us. So beginning in verse 31, let us hear these words. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.